Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the recently released theatrical film directed by Masaki Yuasa Inuo. I think this is actually the first theatrical Yuasa that we're talking about on this podcast, which in hindsight is kind of a shame. I know we talked about Devilman Crybaby way back. We talked about Kaiba somewhat recently. I say recently, that's like two years ago at this point. But anyway, we're talking about Inuo on this episode. My name is Austin. Hello. And I am joined by three fantastic co-hosts to join me on this musical journey. Who do I have with me this evening? Uh, you have me, Bill. Uh, you know, I was really excited for this bridge concert, but those Ticketmaster prices, why are they so expensive? It's on a bridge. <laughs> those scalpers. Those scalpers. It's on a bridge. They shouldn't be charging that much. I have to stand to see the concert. There's no seating. <laughs> So I don't get why Ticketmaster is charging so much for these bridge tickets. And it's feudal Japan, so there there is no PA system. Exactly. It's a it's a highway robbery here. Uh, Tori here, and I'm here to play my Biwa on the bridge for the masses. And charge Bill an exorbitant price. <laughs> And I'm the artist formerly known as Tobias, but I'm going by Toby Ichi nowadays. <laughs> Tobiare later down the line. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> if you're feeling <laughs> it. But yes, on this episode, we're talking about Iniwo, a movie I think we all enjoyed uh, to some extent. And uh, yeah, we're super excited to talk about that. But first, sort of before we get into that... We did want to have a brief discussion about a convention that we attended somewhat recently. About three weeks ago from the time of this recording, we attended Queen City Anime Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. They were kind enough to bring us out to be featured panelists for them, so we appreciate that. And I guess, you know, just generally speaking, let's just talk about how the con went. I mean, for me, I I had a good time. I had uh, a lot of panels to do both of my own and uh, collaboration panels with uh, Tobias and Tori, which we can talk about. But I think probably the coolest thing that I got to do throughout the weekend is that I was able to moderate some of the Q&As for some of the voice actor guests. I was able to sit down and have a interview time with a couple of people who are uh, people that I knew beforehand, people I was fans of, and then some people that I had to do some some research on before. But it was really cool to be able to sit down and talk with some cool voice talent and some people that have done not only voice acting, but also ADR script writing and uh, dubbing, like dubbing production and things like that. Like probably... Well, I, I really enjoyed all of my conversations, but I really especially enjoyed talking to uh, Tiana Camacho, who is the voice of Hermes in Stone Ocean. And you guys know that I'm a big JoJo's fan, so getting to talk to her was really cool. I also got to sit down and talk with Matt Shipman and Brittany Lauda, who own the small dubbing studio Kocha Sound. And they worked a lot on uh, Akudama Drive. They worked on Skate the Infinity and a bunch of other productions for Netflix and Funimation. And Brittany Lauda is the voice of FF in Stone Ocean. So I got a, a double helping of, of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure voice actors. And I talked to some other folks, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll talk about that shortly. I don't want to monopolize all their time. All my, 
all of our time. So let's toss it over to Tobias. What was your general take of the, your convention experience? Yeah, so this has been the first con I've been back to since the start of the pandemic. Uh, so it was both trying to enjoy Queen City, which has always been kind of a, a smaller, low-key event, but also be a little careful because I'm still one of those people still wearing masks, still trying to social distance whenever possible, limit my uh, you know time in public around crowds. However, over the past year and hell, the past couple months, there have been a number of success stories with cons, in particular the ones that are requiring full vaccination and masking, which Queen City was one of, I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. happy to say. And uh, yeah, as far as I know, there's been no spreader, spreader event at all. None of us contracted COVID. The uh, few times we walked around, uh, they were they were enforcing the mask <laughs> usage mm-hmm. uh, all throughout. So very, very happy to see that um, all weekend. That being said, I still did limit my time in the public spaces. Uh, I think I spent more time in the hotel room this year than I have in years prior, just to limit that exposure in general. Uh, very least it came back positive. Or rather, I didn't come back positive, which is the positive, I, I guess I'm trying to say. <laughs> be careful uh, Be careful about your wording there, friend. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so I did just a, tr- a trio of panels here uh, this weekend. I debuted a brand new one, uh, one about the Star Wars Visions anthology series that Disney put out last year. Uh, that was kind of fun. I was a fan of a lot of the studios that they worked with to make that, so it was really fun to both research that and share all the fruits of my research with uh what the 10 people that were there yeah, friday you, morning you basically <laughs> opened the pan the open the convention with that with that panel and you did it sitting on a couch without a table yeah strangely <laughs> enough like they put me in the big room and they had like a gdq style like couch the couch and a couple chairs kind of a discussion panel which is a lot mm-hmm. different than you know the tables that we're used to so that's I where I did like... my Q&A panels, just for, for reference. I guess that's probably why they had it set up that way for the voice actor Q&As, which don't need a table, but still it was yeah. kind of weird for panels. Yeah, I think I just got shoved in there because it was the first thing. All of our other panels were in one of the more regular style rooms. But yeah, it was kind of neat. It was kind of weird to have a like a, a lounge chair with my laptop in my lap with all the wires hanging off of it. But I worked out really well, the panel. Uh, a little worried about it because it was brand new, but worked out pretty well. I had uh, too much information, so I had to cut it down, you know, as I presented it, which is a, uh, a better a better outcome than the alternative, I think, uh, in general. But uh, I went on to present uh, a new version of my Beyond Miyazaki anime creators you should know. A Tobias a, classic. A, yeah, a uh, sort of a clickbaity style panel, get people in the doors and they see the word Miyazaki really talk about other people in general. So just uh, in general, kind of the same, but I added uh, both Izama Dazaki and Hideaki Anno this time around, cleaned up some of the studio talk I've done previously, just to give it a little bit of a fresh fresh face. Uh, the last time I presented this, this same panel at Queen City, I was in the hallway because I got overbooked the room. So just because Oof. there were like 20 people that still wanted to see my panel, I just said, screw it, we're gonna do this in the hallway. <laughs> I just kind of stood up, no microphone, you know, as loud as I could project my voice talking about these people. And that was a, a memorable experience, kind of fun for what it was. I'm reminded uh, of the term we coined quite a many years ago, guerrilla paneling. 
gorilla paneling. Yep, I think that's kind of kind of where we started it. Right, I kind of started it with doing that. Uh, but yeah, then we closed off. Then I not only did I open the entire convention with Star Wars Visions, I closed the convention with Anime of the Quarantine Era, a overview of the stuff that had come out, as well as a lot of the news that had come out in the anime industry uh, since you know March 2020. A lot of series to cover, a lot of news, uh, corporate acquisitions sort of news to, to go over. And we filled those two hours we had. Could have easily gone into three if uh, that was a thing we could do. But yeah, a lot of fun. Glad to be back. Uh, yeah. I, I haven't sat and talked about anime as much as I should in the past two years, whether in person or on podcast. So it's, it's good to be back. Well, good. I'm I'm glad that you were able to do some cool panels and to breathe some fresh life into some old content because that's always pretty 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 fulfilling. But uh, uh, Tori, you had a very different experience than than us because you were not so awash in having to provide content. So, what was your Queen City like this year? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so I didn't think I could go, so I didn't submit anything. Um, I sat in on the 2012 panel. And mostly just sat in on panels in general. I got a really nice nap on Saturday early evening. Never get to do that at cons because I'm always busy. And uh, that was basically it. I just kind of vibed the whole weekend. So it was fine. Yep. No, it's it's nice to, you know, I mean, I wouldn't know. I'm only speaking from... Uh, you know, secondhand perspective, but I hear it's nice when you're not running yourself ragged at a convention, having to do hours and hours of programming, especially like a four hour block of programming in a five hour period. I wouldn't know anyone that had to do that specifically. <laughs> who uh, who would have thunk it? No. Who would have thunk I it? I had no idea what to do with myself. It was very weird, especially at a smaller con where there's not a lot going on in one given moment. Um, so, I don't know. Like I said, I just vibed. It was fine. Would you have a preference? Would you rather have been more busy? It was kind of nice to not be, especially after Animazement, um, doing all that stuff for them. So, um, it was kind of nice, but I wish I at least had like one or two more panels to do, I mm -hmm. think. Well, it was nice to have you on the 2012 panel because we did that in Animazement as well. And I think we talked about it on that episode. But it was basically like, hey, it's been 10 years since 2012. Look at all these cool things that came out that year. And we were able to rope Tobias in to do this iteration. And we added a couple of things like Humanity has Declined, which Tobias is very into. And people seem to love that clip that we played. So I'm, I'm really glad that you put a bug in my ear to make sure we talked about that show in the 2012 panel. So thanks for that. Yeah, it's a lot of silly fun. Yep, yep, that was a fun panel that all four of us did together. But uh, Bill, mm -hmm. Bill, how was your convention experience? Um, pretty solid for the most part. Um, I did my anime anthologies panel, which I found went pretty well. Um, the the amount of video I had in there uh, did not buckle. the The PowerPoint survived, so that was a good. <laughs> Uh, I had a decent crowd, so I was pretty happy with that. Uh, talking a lot about movies like the Genius Party movies and memories, which are always solid and always enjoyable to talk about. And I was kind of uh, uh, along for the ride for, with the uh, 2012 and the quarantine panel, which was fun. I think what I enjoyed about the, uh, the con the most was just kind of hanging out where... Um, 
whether that was playing like uh, the new Mario Kart tracks uh, with Tobias mm. or <laughs> going to that really cool uh, ramen restaurant Friday night. Oh yeah, that, mm. that was really good, and um, and uh, learning about <laughs> that amazing table flip game in the arcade where basically <laughs> you have a table. And you're just waiting for the exact perfect moment to flip it over and get the most points. Uh, it was it was amazing. It was a revelation. Spending uh, time in the arcade was probably the thing that I wanted to do the most that I didn't get a chance to do, which is you know a bummer for me. <laughs> they had they had some uh, cool cabinets. Like they had a really cool Gundam cabinet. Where it was two v two versus, you could pick any Gundam pilot from any of the franchise, and uh, what was cool was they would have the uh, two cabinets uh, side by side, and then in the middle was a TV that was showing the battle as it was going on, and so I just thought from a cabinet design perspective, it looked pretty cool. Hmm. So I will say uh, I did I did do something that was uh, a first for me and I still don't really know what to do with it. I bought an anime peeker, <gasps> but I don't know what I'm gonna do with it because I don't really want to put it on my car. Yeah, you can put it in the garbage. <laughs> I can, well, it's it's Anya from Spy Family. Why would I do that? That's so mean. It's her heh face. You know. Hey. <laughs> I mean. I, Based on the amount of peekers we saw around the con parking lot, it was either a Demon Slayer one, Spy Family, or some random thing I didn't know. <laughs> so, but Demon Slayer was probably the most popular one that I saw. So. Well, that, that random thing that you don't know is more than likely Genshin Impact, the most uh, popular yeah. anime at the convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ranking ranking of the cosplayers, it was uh, Genshin Impact, which confounded Tobias, which was funny. Uh, Demon Slayer uh, was in the hunt at the number two spot, and then probably like a third was Spy Family. Like I saw a lot of uh, of yours uh, cosplays. Mm-hmm. Hearing reports out of Otacon, it sounded like the the bigger cons. Your was. Far and away, the winner of, of cosplay. Surprised that Genshin has was easily the far and away the winner here. Mm-hmm. Whenever you saw somebody with just a nondescript kimono and whatever, it's, it's a definitely a Genshin character. Well, I it's think it's probably it... because the fan base trends pretty young, and that con uh, um, draws. I was going to say unfortunately, <laughs> um, but that wasn't wow. the word I wanted to use. <laughs> um, Queen City draws in a lot of a younger crowd, and Genshin is absolutely very popular with the tweens right now Mm -hmm. so that probably had a lot to do with it and the added fact that a a considerable poor i think every guest that they had was in genshin impact in some form or fashion some of them having played fairly popular characters from my understanding and i did have to do a considerable amount of research into genshin impact to do the audience (laughs) excuse me to do the voice actor q a moderation and i mean it was pretty cool. Did I mean, you play Genshin it, Impact? Yeah, I've I've put about four hours into the game, and I completely understand why people enjoy it, especially like a younger crowd, because a it's like 
completely free. Like, you can play that game and not really have to spend any money unless you want to roll for characters, which is entirely optional. And it's also on everything. It's on PC, it's on mobile, it's on PS4. The only thing it's not on is on Switch, so it's very accessible. And again, like I said, it's free. And it's got this huge cast of characters and, you know, anything like that, there's bound to be, you know, you pick your favorite, you really go for that one. So, I, you know, I, I totally get the appeal. I, I understand where they're coming from. And it, it's pretty fun. You know, it's nothing groundbreaking. I might play it off and on, you know, down the line. But, uh, you know, I, I, I get it. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, doing What the, you're saying is that next year there's going to be a lot of Roblox cosplay. I mean, I hope so, but they took the oof sound out. So, I mean, is there really any reason to play that game anymore? No. Exactly. You could call that a big oof. You know, maybe Roblox just needs to steal the Breath of the Wild aesthetic like everyone else has. Mm. And then everyone would be like, oh, we gotta go play Roblox now. We can call it Let's oof go. of the wild. You just gotta put more waifus, more anime waifus in your Roblox, and there you go. That's all it needs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah apart from the q a's which i did one again like i said with tiana camacho Brittany lada matt shipman i also did one with retina and uh risa may and did i do another one no i think that was it just those four and they you are primarily very, known you were a very busy person i i was Honestly. wondering i was wondering how are you how were you going <laughs> especially on saturday because it was like yeah for like five six hours i'm doing q a's for all these guests and i'm doing my own panels and i mean I get a lunch break <laughs> i mean tori knows this i was texting you during one like before one of the last q a started and i was like oh no i feel my brain shutting down it's like the windows shut down yeah. noise <laughs> um and i was like please can you go can you like get me an advil or something and thankfully that picks me right up but you know in hindsight i'm really glad that i did all the content that i did mm-hmm. because i got to talk to those cool people and even if i'm not super personally familiar with their work just learning about it and talking to them you know as actors as artists you know in that in that setting was was very enlightening and a lot of them are fairly recent to the industry so it was cool to hear their perspective of you know people that have just gotten into this business you know within the last couple of years especially with uh with covid and remote recording being kind of a new standard for a while like risa may speaking to her it's like she had had a uh you know a performing arts background before but she really didn't get into anime and video game dubbing until like 2020 so like in the midst of the pandemic is where she started her career and that was really interesting for her um just to hear you know the differences between someone that approached it like that versus you know someone that started in the 90s and just never stopped so mm-hmm. I felt very enriched by that experience, and I'm I'm glad I had the opportunity opportunity to do it. My my one thing that I wish I was able to do is that I wasn't able to do a Q and A session with Erica Lindbeck because she was also there at the con, and she's very cool. She's somebody. She's an actress that I really like and appreciate her roles. Uh, but we did get to meet her, Tori and I, briefly at her uh, at her Q and A, or not at her Q and A, like at her autograph table, and that was cool. That was enough. But I guess for my solo panels, you know, I did my Spider-Man panel that I premiered at at Animazement, and that went over really well. Again, the 2012 one and my 10 anime movies thing, which the subject of this podcast is definitely a contender for any time I want to do that panel in the future. 
But mm-hmm. is there anything else that anybody would like to say about Queen City this year? I can't believe we put all this discussion without mentioning the most important aspect that we saw John Carley for the first time in like two years. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Longtime <laughs> listeners of this podcast might remember John for being on the first. Well, he was on a lot of our episodes in the early days, but he has not been on an episode since the first season of Demon Slayer that we reviewed. Like, back in 2019 and basically after that podcast he fell off the face of the planet but we found him we found him again (laughs) he watched sword for truth with me for the podcast and said no more anime for me it's it's, this is this is peak anime i I, there's nowhere else to go after that (laughs) is it that or is it because you fried his brain you know, I like to look at it in a positive way. I'm not, I'm, I, it might have fried his brain. It might have blown his brain. We don't know. We just don't know. It's a compounding of factors. Exactly, Austin. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, any final, final words on Queen City before we move on to Inuo? Nope. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about Masaki Yuasa's Inuo. So Inuo is a 2021 animated feature film that came out here in the U.S. courtesy of G-Kids in the past few weeks or so at the time of this recording, like mid-August 2022. It was directed by the Masaaki Yuasa, you know, a creator that has been really on quite a uh, artistic rampage in the last like five or six years or so. Like he was already a pretty known quantity to... Uh, more niche anime sickos people like tobias of course uh for yes, his the, the, the niche anime sickos that watch madhouse movies well i mean compared to <laughs> compared to people that only watch dragon ball i mean you're not wrong you're exactly not wrong. exactly you got like mind mind game kaiba uh yeah exactly mind game kaiba but his stuff, uh, he didn't really break into sort of the more popular consciousness until uh, 2018's Devilman Crybaby on Netflix that exposed his work to a lot more people. So I feel like his name is a lot more popular nowadays. And he's just kind of been on, again, like a creative rampage since then. Like he released Lou Over the Wall, The Night is Short Walk-On Girl, uh, what else? Ride, Ride Your, Your Wave. Wave. Yep. Uh, even before that, and uh, his studio, Science Saru, has also been, you know, doing quite a lot of amazing things lately. They worked on Star Wars Visions. They did Keep Your Hands Off Azoken from 2020. They did the recent uh, Heike Story adaptation with Naoko Yamada mm-hmm. directing that, which will come up later in the episode. So, 
Again, that's kind of the pedigree of where Iniwo is coming from. And this, apparently, is going to be his last film before he retires. But hopefully, if he's anything like Hayao Miyazaki, he will get sick of being retired within a few years and come back and blow us all away once again. Uh, I say that in the hopefulness that he's retiring so that he can have a break and he deserves it. But I would also appreciate him coming back to the industry at some point. I really hope that this is not the end of his career. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. So that's the director, Masaki Yuasa. Any other thoughts on Yuasa before I move on to the other folks? Um, just happy. No, I think you nailed it. Go ahead, yeah. Bill. Just, just kind of happy that he's choosing to go out on his own terms and not feeling like he just needs to con- continue to stay on the hamster wheel that is anime mm-hmm. production. So, mm-hmm. and there's there's tons of capable hands at uh, at Science Hour. Like uh, currently, this I think it's this season. Uh, Science Hour is doing Yuri Deco, which mm-hmm. I know Tobias has been watching. And uh, they have they've announced a few other projects. So Science Saru is going to continue to make probably really good work in the near future. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like he he will. He's his retirement is not taking the studio down with him. It seems like they've really done a good job at cultivating good talent that will carry on really cool experimental things uh even after he's uh you know kind of stepped down stepped down from the company yeah i don't i don't think we've seen the last of yuasa completely i'm glad he's stepping down for all the reasons you guys have given so far but i get the impression that he just is he needs a really long break at this point i but i don't think he's completely gone uh, Mm. forever my impression at least Mm -hmm. So the original uh, conceptual character designer for Inuo is none other than uh, manga legend Tayo Matsumoto, who is the mangaka for Ping Pong, which was his award-winning manga that got a anime adaptation directed by Yuasa back in the early 2010s or so. And he also did the mangas for uh, Tekon Kinkrete and Number 5, Sunny, and Cats of the Louvre. So he's a very unique manga artist he has a very specific style some people would maybe pen it towards more like this is gonna sound oxymoronic but like weird realism i don't know that's kind of a strange way to put it people have a really kind of love hate with his artwork you either really love his art or you think his artwork is is uh is not great and uh is a little overhyped um, but I think it's unique. It's a different perspective. It's very kind of fluid in his character designs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think his artwork is interesting from the stuff I have seen. He likes characters with bad teeth. That's one thing he really likes. <laughs> I always got to bring it back to that, Austin. <laughs> uh, and the character designer that adapted his designs into the versions used in the film is Nobutake Ito, was the character designer and the animation director on Kaiba, Lou Over the Wall, Ping Pong, and the Tatami Galaxy. So very much a frequent collaborator with Yuasa and Science Saru more broadly. So the chief animation director on the film is Satoshi Nakano, who was the assistant director on Summertime Rendering, which came out just last season that we that Bill talked about on our 
2022 spring anime season episode that you can go check out right now. He was also the chief animation director on a number of Pokemon movies. And another co-chief animation director is Yoshimichi Kameda, who was an assistant mechanical animator on Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0. He was a character designer and animation director for Mob Psycho 100 seasons 1 and 2. And is the chief animation director of season three, which will be coming out sometime in the near future. I'm very excited for that, of course. And then the art director for the film overall is Hideki Nakamura, who was the art director for the Studio 4C Berserk Golden Age Arc trilogy films. He also was the art director on Gundam Hathaway's Flash and the Gundam Thunderbolt OVAs. So we've got quite a group of talented folks here working on Inuo. So Tori, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the folks in the voice cast? Yeah, um, so this was actually my favorite when it clicked and I realized what was happening. So Inuo is voiced by Avachan, who is most well known for being the lead vocalist of Queen Bee. And they've been around for a long while, like um, them as a band. And they did the opening, the really good opening song for Dororo 2019. And then the ending song called Half for Tokyo Ghoul Re. They've also done some voice work. They were Devil King Zion and Devilman Crybaby. And they've been in a few live action films. I think their first live action film credit was also with Mirai Moriyama, who plays Tomina, Tomoichi, Tomari, depending on the point in the story. Um, so they've worked together before, and that was really cool to know that. Um, so I'm sure they had fun reuniting and working together on something again. Mirai Moriyama, who, like I said, was Tomona, funny enough, was also Jesus in St. Young Men. <laughs> hmm. I thought this one was interesting to pull, um, point out. So Inuo's dad, um, the other stage dancer, was played by Kinjiro Suda who's most known for roles like Nanami in Jujutsu Kaisen, Overhaul in My Hero Academia, and Fire Emblem in Tiger and Bunny. It's a really cool cast, and a lot of the other actors are like long-running live-action actors who not a lot of them, if I remember correctly, have done voiceover work before. So that would be interesting to see how they feel about that. So, I think this central <laughs> I think these three central characters are probably the ones that get the most like acting time like a lot of yes. the other characters like they're there but this is really the central cast in terms of like you know which characters really move the plot along forward mm-hmm, for sure all right Tobias so in enlighten us sort of give us a sort of a, a historical context for how like what what is Inuo what is kind of the origin of this particular story and how does it relate to the the legend of the Heike or the Heike story yeah so uh Inuo was a real person he's still alive to this day (laughs) some (laughs) say that's true (laughs) some say he's still dancing under that bridge to this very day Yeah, so interestingly enough, uh, the movie Inuo is based on a, a a new novel written by Hideo Furukawa. Uh, this author is a one of those sort of well-known, up-and-coming Japanese novelists. One of those people that, you know, unlike Murakami, doesn't really have a whole lot of a following outside of Japan. 
but is quickly up and coming with his more uh, dystopian themed novels. Um, like a lot of Japanese novelists, he has uh, done some new translation of older, older stories. So in 2016, he did a new version of the uh, Heike Monogatari, which is the tale of the Heike clan, following a, another adaptation of the tale of the Genji clan uh, earlier in that decade. So we would see a few years later, he would do a novel based on a side story from the tale of the Heike uh, called the Inuo chapter, which is a, about 160 pages, just a novel based on uh, this character, this almost throwaway character, Inuo, our dog king. And he gave him a bit of a, a bit of a new spin. So what we do know of Inuo, uh, who was a real person, we don't really, we're, we're, we're pretty sure that he wasn't able to really stretch his arms out and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But the real life Inuo did exist. Uh, it was a notable, uh, I'm sorry, notable is probably not the right word. He, uh, he was a Saragaku, or no performer and writer, but all of his plays have been lost, just like in the movie. Uh, the other details that we saw in the movie were definitely fictionalized, however. Uh, I don't think there were a real ghost, probably. I don't think there was a real sword that could you know, cut people in half, maybe. But all of that was sort of added on to that novel, and then expanded out even further in this movie, uh, this movie itself. Yeah, that's so right. uh, I will say looking into this, because Furukawa is a novelist that really hasn't made it out of Japan, because if you go to you know Google or anything and type in Inuo, all you get are results, results and reviews for the movie. It was a, uh, a bit of, it was a bit difficult to get any hard information about this guy or this novel. Uh, I was able to find a Twitter thread written by Mateo Watsky, a writer on the Anime Tudes blog and also a contributor to Forfronto.moe, who had a really good write-up and the most conclusive write-up that I saw. I'm sure we can put a link to that in the show notes for those of you who want to read that. Yeah, I saw uh, someone on Twitter also make the comparison, I think mostly kind of as a joke, but I, I could see where they're coming from. It's like, Whereas the Heike story is Hamlet, Inuo is kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where it takes like these two side characters from this really famous piece of literature and kind of like makes a whole story about them, which I think is interesting. I mean, the comparison doesn't like one to one like line up because I don't think Tomona is really a character in the Heike story. I think he's more original to Furukawa's novel. But right. I do, yeah. I do think that's a that's an interesting way to to look at it, uh, if you're familiar with like Hamlet and the and the spinoff story. But um, yeah, I think this is a really interesting experiment. But also, in a way, you don't. I I feel I mean I, we could talk about this a little bit later, but I feel like you don't really need all that much information going in to enjoy this movie. I think it stands alone pretty pretty well. But uh, but uh, before we before we jump on that, maybe maybe we hold that for for a minute. But I guess let's just go ahead and talk generally speaking about what we thought about the film. So I'm going to toss it over to Tori first. Uh, what did you think of the movie? Ooh yeah, so I really loved it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here doing an episode on it with you guys. Um, I Tori's was very cap- just long enough. 
just long enough to talk about a movie. <laughs> yes. I was very captivated from start to finish. And every time I was surprised by something, it would give me something else to be surprised about. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. The music was really cool and catchy. I was definitely like tapping my foot in the seat to some of those scenes. And um, yeah, I think it's kind of accessible. Like you were saying, you don't really have to sort of know the history necessarily. Um, It definitely makes me want to learn more about it, but... Yeah, I don't think you really need to know that to go into it and enjoy it. Yuasa has not made a thing yet that I've been disappointed by. So he's got a great track record, I think. And if he really is retired, he won't ever make anything that you haven't liked. Exactly. And now I think he'll pull a Miyazaki and he'll go into retirement for like three years and then make something else and then say, okay, I'm going into retirement again and just rinse and repeat. So we'll see. He's going to make Ponyo next. <laughs> Yeah, well, he already did that. It's called Lou over Wait the wall. Minute. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Ponyo, but much better. Better by a factor of like thirty. <laughs> yeah. Bill, what did you think of the movie? I loved it, mostly just because of the musical sequences and just how elaborate they were. It was like being at like a peak Queen David Bowie concert uh, with some of the musical performances. I I wish. I was at a convention premiere for this movie because I think seeing it in a crowd would be a real fun, Mm -hmm. would be such a fun experience. Mm. And um, I, I I kind of am very happy that this is the movie he kind of went out on because um, I, I liked ride your wave. I didn't love it. Um, I think that's my, if I had to pick my least favorite of his works. But um, no, I just just for the music alone, it it really uh, blew me away, and I I didn't really have any nitpicks other than uh, the the ending, which I guess we'll get into a bit later. But overall, I really mm-hmm. liked it. Now the reason I asked those two first is that I felt like Tobias was going to have maybe a slightly deviating perspective. If you haven't evolved since the last time I talked to you about it, which I don't know. So what what are your thoughts? What did you think of Inuo Tobias? Yeah, yeah, I get to be the bad guy, don't I? Mm, you I guess me so. for last. <laughs> well, if if uh, I mean, unless you if, want me to go first, and then you can really go last. No, that's fine. Uh, as uh, as I'm sure our devoted listeners will know, because they all subscribe to our Discord, which uh, you should do if you haven't already. Uh, I was a little down on the movie right when I saw it last week. I think for whatever reason i didn't walk away loving this movie i didn't dislike it i don't think there's any complaints really uh when i think about it everything you know comes together more or less i just didn't walk away loving this movie the same way that i did lou over the wall or nighty short or really anything else of you else's work and i think there's a lot to be said about um hype and advertising and all of that being amplified via social media being in the middle of a global pandemic that nobody knows they're going to survive. However, you know, putting that all in context, I don't think there's really a big nitpick it can have. There are points I think where it doesn't really come together all that great. It seems like there's a lot of disparate parts via the historical context. Yeah, it's just set dressing for the rock opera itself. But even then, it can be a little confusing, you know, until you stop to really think about it and put it all, you know, put it all together like a big puzzle. I don't know. I mean, I like the themes. I genuinely think what it has to say about um, 
nonconformity, what it has to say about um, speaking truth to power, and what I think it has to say about the uh, idea of you know rock music and the devil music and kids these days, I think <laughs> all come together really well and make it all feel um, relevant uh, in an eternal sense. It's not just something that's a new thing. They're it's, all growing their kind of been there. They're all growing their hair out and they smell like prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's something. Well, you know, it's something I have to think about. And if nothing else, I think a movie that makes me stop to think that will make my opinion evolve over time is a much better movie than one that I just love immediately and always love. Mm. I think the I think the hype train got you. And I mean, it definitely it, did. It's, uh, it's, it definitely did. Um, I was I as soon as this movie got announced, like at the end of 2019, 2020, something like that, I immediately was on board for this. And I think having to wait two years, um, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, movies take time to make. I'm not trying to say they should have crunched or anything. I think my expectation was skewed, however, and just further skewed because of desperately wanting something new, you know, in the middle of all the, the hellscape that was yeah. 2020 kind of offset it about nobody to blame for that nobody to blame for that myself you know well it's it's funny because i went into this movie rather cold like i knew same this was a uasa movie this is something he'd been work on working on but i wasn't following it on twitter or i didn't see the trailer i didn't see the trailer i just knew it was a uasa thing and i knew i i liked his prior stuff so i'm gonna go see it and i think going in more cold probably helped me like this movie more yeah, I, I had a definitely see that. Yeah, sure. I had a, I had a similar experience because, like you, I mean, I've been following Yuasa's work for a number of years, but like whenever they announced this one, like for some reason, I just like completely turned my brain off of to it. Probably because, and this is a very shallow reason, it didn't have a great poster. Like I wasn't really, <laughs> oh my God. I wasn't really down <laughs> for the poster. Like, like <laughs> compared compared to like his other stuff, which are so striking with like colors and vibrant character designs. Like this was a very abstract poster that basically just had the Gord mask on it, and I was just like, okay, yeah. you know what? I'm I'm not gonna really bother getting super excited for this. I'm just gonna wait for it to come out. And I think I saw one of the trailers once like maybe in front of another fathom event or something and i was like okay cool i'm still gonna go see this still excited for it but i had a hard time really understanding what i was looking at so i just kind of ejected it from my mind and didn't really try and form an opinion until i got there so all that to say i really enjoyed it because i think i tampered my own expectations for it and i think having been able to see it twice because i saw it once with tori and another time with tobias really made me appreciate some of the things that I was a little bit more confused by, especially in the first act, because the first act feels like a little bit kind of like a lot of context, a lot of things that are very, very like serious and very different than like acts two and three, which is, I mean, I guess you could make that criticism to the work overall that like act one is like, very slow and downplayed compared to the rest of the film which is just like basically an hour-long musical like the first act is very very different um yeah Mm -hmm. and i think i was a little bit taken aback by that the first time i watched it but you know the riding the high of the the musical parts that really kick in in act two and come to a head in act three like that's the part of the movie that made me think okay 
this was really really fun really enjoyable uh so i i just mm-hmm. i just walked away from the film having mostly very positive feelings towards the whole thing overall um which is great um i think uh, i think another point problem that i had was that when we went to go see this in the theater uh here in winston-salem for whatever reason the sound system never really hit the volume that i was hoping for mm. i guess it was just a theater thing because like i was waiting i i knew when the music started it was going to be nothing but that you mm-hmm. know I, I was aware of that but something about i guess the volume didn't really hit enough it the i guess it just wasn't a great maybe an older theater we ran i, I can't really say mm-hmm. but i was expecting you know you go see another movie a musical movie you know you you get you can feel the sound waves, you know, reverberating around you. And that's what I was really hoping for here. And didn't really get that in that theater. So maybe when the, um, you know, when the, the home release comes out, I'll have to put on my headphones and uh, make myself go even more deaf listening to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, kind of getting our uh, initial reactions out of the way, like, what did we think of the story of the film? Like, it it kind of starts off, you know, we've got our, we're introduced to our first main character, uh, Tomona, uh, in sort of like a, like a, a ghastly flashback at the very beginning that pays off towards the end. But then you see him, you know, as a little kid with his dad and like this uh, sort of, ghost based accident happens to them where his dad ends up dying and then he goes blind and then he it's like a a mystical sword like they are commissioned to find this to find this well-known sword without the land and when they find it when they if i remember correctly they take it out of its sheath and then some magical Mm -hmm. light beam just goes throughout where they are killing his father and blinding uh blinding him Mm -hmm. and really i think that just served as like an indication that like oh the heike spirits are an active force but really i thought that scene mostly just set up the fact that you know our main character is blind now because of this accident and his father is dead so he's kind of like an orphan because his mother kind of like goes off the rails after this accident happens and he has to leave town and and everything and he uh and i thought i thought one thing that was really really fascinating was the way that they depicted how he sees the world without eyesight Mm -hmm. it's like whenever you're seeing things from tomana's perspective it's very um this is kind of a a a silly way to to compa- compare it, but it, you guys remember the two thousand three Daredevil movie where like it's raining and then you know he <laughs> sees the shapes of things. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yes. it's kind of it's kind of like that, but better. <laughs> uh, better in the sense that like no, it's not a perfect image based on the sounds that he sees. It's still very fuzzy, but you it's get the point the- that Yuasa can use to give it a more surreal look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and then that that comes in handy uh, for the plot later on because it 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 kind of it's the catalyst for why he doesn't react to Inuo the way that most people react to Inuo. 
Um, so yeah, our main character, he becomes like a, uh, a protege of this Abiwa priest who, if you're not familiar with Biwa priests, they're basically like Buddhist, are they like Buddhist or Shinto priests that like play the Biwa and that's like their main thing that they do. I don't know. That's, they probably do a lot more than that, but that's, that's kind of their purpose in the film. I'm pretty sure it's Buddhist. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, so yeah, he becomes like a Biwa protege underneath this elderly Biwa priest who is also blind and then you know they move to uh, the capital of Kyoto and join a troop there and then sort of we shift perspectives to Inuo our secondary main character who we kind of find out is like this uh, kid who was cursed before he was born and basically turned into this horrible monster his story is very similar to Dororo in that the father in Dororo and the father here basically gave their son away and the, their body and soul of their son away to this devil demon-like creature for them to be prosperous. Um, and then the, I don't know, the, the being of their sons come back and then uh, kind of as vengeance, not on purpose, but as vengeance to what their fathers had done, begin mm-hmm. to uh, cause uh, misfortune to them. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of, a, to make that Dororo comparison, it is interesting because, like, Dororo's journey is about, like, going out to basically, like, find the demons that... Uh, his father sacrificed his body parts to and like killing them to get them back. But Inuo is kind of like a subversion of that because whereas Dororo is very like, like uh, revenge minded, Inuo doesn't, you never really feel like Inuo is out for revenge or that he like, he's just vibing and having a good time. Yeah. Which is, which is really, <laughs> which is really interesting because, you know, he has every, every right and every, reason to feel like bitter towards his father that that did this to him sort of made him an outcast by like turning him into this monster that like cannot interact with with people but he kind of spins that and is just like you know what i if i if i get my limbs back that's really cool because i can dance better or something like that it's like he's not angry which i thought was really interesting but did you guys have any thoughts on that because that that's one thing that really stood out to me we see um, him characterized pretty early on. He's, he's he's certainly not angry directly at his family, but he learns to use his uh, his body to sort of get power over the people around him. We see mm-hmm. him, as soon as he gets his legs, he runs through the town, starts scaring people, running around, taking his mask off to scare people. That's how he gets his kicks, just running around and you know getting one up on these people in some way. Until he meets um, Toro Tomana, I was gonna say I was gonna say Biwa, the character from Make <laughs> a Story, but right? No. Uh, he plays uh, the Biwa. Yeah. He is not Biwa. <laughs> yeah, before he meets Tomana, and his his initial arc is he's a better dancer, a better no dancer than his his brothers are. Mm-hmm. So even though he doesn't have that training, you know he's he's automatically better than them. So he's not really braggy about it or anything, mm-hmm. but he certainly wants to express himself. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, he break dances. That, that is his motivation. He does. He break. 
He break dances. Yes. <laughs> which a really fun sequence where he, he basically has like a monstrous hand in the beginning. And we learn as as he begins to perform, becomes more and more normal. But at first, he's basically like this sort of monstrous figure with a giant hand and uh, begins to uh, dance at first. And he keeps his face covered like a bit like Phantom of the Opera style by this like gourd mask that he wears. And uh, like you said, like he's running around town whenever he gets his legs, which um, the the way that it works in the film is that like like he he does these dances and then his uh like the the spirits of the Heike warriors like that are around him like grant him his uh human limbs back because he's they see him as helping them to tell their story through song and dance which is exactly kind of what what no theater kind of is in the in the broad sense it's like passing down the stories so they're they're kind of like smiling on him and giving them these these uh, blessings in the in the form of like turning like getting rid of his curse. Uh, so he feels like well, dancing is like a the way that he expresses himself and b a great way to like you know get get this curse off of him. But he never approaches it in a way where he's just like lamenting his situation. I guess I mean he does a bit. He he obviously recognizes that he's different than people. And wishes people would treat him normally, but he kind of uses his gifts to his advantage instead of like being bitter or being mean. And like most of the time mm-hmm. in that scene where he's like running around scaring people, it's obviously just for kicks. Like he's not doing it in a malicious yeah. way. He ultimately learns, like many artists, to sublimate his trauma into art. Exactly. And like the scene where you meet, where he meets. Uh, Tomana is like very 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 predictable within the context of you know, what the movie has set up so far it's like ah the monster meets the blind man you know very much like in uh, the original Frankenstein where you know they have an understanding of each other because like the monster uh, doesn't you know he his 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 uh, his appearance scares people but the blind man he can't see him so he only judges him by his personality so they kind of form a camaraderie that way. And since they both have this sort of mutual appreciation for music, they basically start a band together. How different this movie would be if Inuo just wasn't a big fan of, of the Biwa. <laughs> right. maybe, maybe he would be more of an EDM kind of guy. <laughs> that's, your bo- that's your boy Kong Ming. That's a different show. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> if they had a rap sequence in, in your it would have been like... Oh, my God. Oh, it's like it's confirming again. It's the year of the rap in anime. <laughs> oh, I think, we're, I think we're on prog rock now, Phil.
But yeah, I mean, that's that's generally the setup, and then the movie just kind of goes from there, and you know, uh, Inuo puts on these incredible performances, and he gets known sort of in the underground, and lots of people get drawn to his performances, and they keep getting more and more elaborate. And, you know, as he does them, the, the Heike spirit sort of, you know, heal his curse as he tells their story, but eventually that comes into conflict with the new shogun who only wants certain stories told, which adds another layer to the story. But I've talked a lot. Is there any any other directions you guys would be interested in exploring? Uh, just the elaborateness of the concert sequences where initially they're just, it's just the two of them on a bridge and then it becomes like a full-on arena rock show with like a crew <laughs> and elaborate fireworks and elaborate uh screen projection mm-hmm. with uh, multiple people in the band like it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding where to the point where I, if this was like in modern day they'd be performing at like madison square garden or the o2 arena or or dodger stadium <laughs> with how mm-hmm. big they were getting and just I, I kind of just love the elaborateness that we see is of of the concert sequences of just the the stagecraft of it all. I was gonna say it got bigger every time, and like more set pieces were involved. And by the end of it, it was just like it was like, how are you gonna top this? And then he did, and it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate that, even though this is is an anime, you know, headed by a person who's very good at doing surreal stuff. All of those sets had practical, you know, quote unquote, effects. Uh, like the first one we see, the burial, what, burial mount to arms, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Like you can kind of watch and see all the effects and the rope work they've done to set everything up. And it all works. It's not like it made fantastic at all. It, it's uh, an actual living set, which is pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a neat touch because, you know, there are some things that are certainly embellished, like... The fact that all of their Biwa playing sounds like, you know, arena rock and, you know, obviously there's no electricity so they can't have amps and things like that. But like some of the effects that they come up with, like like the like the hands made out of straw with string attached to them and like uh, like the big projection of the whale during the whale scene is all stuff that like mm-hmm. might be a little bit embellished. But, you know, kind of effects that probably could have been done in some way or another in in 1400s Japan. I think one central thing, and we kind of touched on this a little bit already, is sort of the central sort of hook of the whole film revolves around, like, the relationship between Tomona and Inuo and sort of their mm. friendship, their partnership as as the film goes along. Like, it's very much like these uh, two you know, uh, underground artists sort of against the world trying to sort of make a name for themselves, but really put art at the forefront of, of everything and seeing sort then of one, what kind of sacrifices they have to go through to get there. And then one sells out to the man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's um, definitely something to talk about. <laughs> I really like their relationship and their dynamic and watching their appearances change as the movie went on. Mm-hmm. And kind of how they grew closer and brought out each other's creativity and things like that. So, um, I don't know. I feel like, what do I want to say? I wish the movie had been like 
just a smidge longer so we could have gotten a little bit more of that or Mm -hmm. this had even been like i don't know a longer running show or something Mm -hmm. because i really liked the two of them together i did too and they said they had such unique contexts for each of their lives and where they were coming from like to- yes. like Tomona comes from you know he's kind of this poor boy like very working class like fisher <laughs> son of a fisherman and they were divers divers yeah okay thank yeah. you and like mm-hmm. his dad is now dead but also following him around as a ghost which was really fun um but his dad you know even from beyond the grave you know insists that like no, you you need to retain your name so that I'm able to find you because for some reason I can't move on to the next life. But that ends up being in conflict with what Tomona really wants to do because first he 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 feels this draw towards becoming a Biwa priest and part of the requirements for the troop that he wants to join is that he has to change his name from Tomona to Tomo Tomoichi to take on the uh, sort of the suffix of the leader of the troop and his dad from beyond the grave was like no if you take on that name i can't find you but tomona's just like i this is what i want to do so i kind of have to it's it's sort of that thing that we all have to run into of like you know when when do we you know separate from you know the powers that raised us and sort of go out and do our own thing which is uh, very very exemplified isn't it also kind of a commentary on tradition yeah, very much so. The, the parents wanting you to follow in your footsteps, whether that be in your career or in certain aspects of um, the of your name. That's a very mm-hmm. important thing of like, will you pass on my name to your child mm-hmm. uh, going forward? So it's it's kind of the same thing as mm-hmm. to keep my legacy alive, uh, maintain my name. And it's like most kids, it's, we we want to rebel and. We want to set our own path. And that's what he's trying to do is kind of find his own path. And I think the the great thing about the two leads relationship is they're just, they're both misfits mm-hmm. and uh, them try them finding each other and just liking each other for their quirks, like mm-hmm. not judging them of like, Oh, you're blind or, Oh, you're, you're a weird looking uh, monster. Just know you just you're pretty cool. We should hang out. Yeah, <laughs> we should make art together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this movie's definitely absolutely playing with like identity here. We we've got this kid and he has one name, and then when his life is thrown asunder and he starts a new chapter, he changes his name again, and then even then it becomes like too complacent in in that role. And he sees his mentor and the community around him being fine with just sitting on their thumbs and telling the old stories. There's no invention happening. And he becomes so, you know, frustrated by this and meets someone, a fellow, let's be honest, a fellow freak that is into new stuff, weird stuff, mm-hmm. that he wants to change it even more and changes his name once again to Tamari at the end. And not only invents this new style of music, as we see, I uh, starts dressing completely differently. And again, sort of the, the rock glam, uh, hair music, hair rock sort of stylings. Uh, he's commented by several people through the movie that you know he, he looks different, his music's different, everything is different about him. I mean, it's, it's very much a matter, not just tradition, like Bill was saying, it's definitely a part of it, but it's a matter of 
telling a story about who you are and expressing yourself in whatever way is comfortable to you. And yeah, it's absolutely playing with gender here as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you could absolutely put the trans perspective lens on this movie (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's a movie about bodily transformation. Mm -hmm. You're choosing a new name and they have development of their physical appearance and identities as the movie progresses. So Mm -hmm. that is sticks out very much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is no accident uh, that Avicham was chosen for the voice actor yeah no oh yes at all here oh yes <laughs> yeah I, I did i don't i'm not gonna put words in you ass's mouth and say he's definitely telling a trans story here but you kind of can't not see it and yeah. it's not just transgender specifically mm-hmm. it is all of that sort of self-expression self-identity mm-hmm. it is choosing this for yourself you know breaking through tradition breaking through norms even some of the more controlling norms in society and telling your story and that's really their their thing at the end we talk about breaking into his curse or just being a b-well player but really what it's about is they want to make their mark on this world in ways that they wouldn't be able to by following following the rules and that is right. exactly why they do all this i did think you know kind of in contrast a little bit to what we were talking about about bucking tradition one thing i did think that was really uh kind of sweet and a little bit unexpected considering the story that we had had so far is that like whenever it comes to the ending and we have the sequence where basically the shogun decides oh we already have all the heike stories that we want to tell we are going to forbid any new Heike stories from being told, and that includes the performances of Tomare and Inuo. So if they want to perform, uh, that's outlawed and we'll kill them. And like, I, own, I only wanted to put this concert on because my, my wife liked you, so I gave this as a present to my wife, and that's it. Right, basically. Like, the Shogun's wife was big into Inuo, they let him do one last performance, and then the Shogun was like, nah, you're just gonna dance for me from now on. But anyway, like, Tomoari goes back to the Biwa priests, and they, you know, in their own way, they kind of welcome him back into the fold. They're just like, we care about you, we we understand that, like, you you may be on a path that we don't necessarily agree with but we're not going to shun you like we're going to welcome you back it has to be on our terms yeah they were like well it has to be on our terms because if it's not the shogun's going to kill you but i did think that that was interesting like he he doesn't like completely and totally get dropped by the people like in the biwa troop just because he decided to do something different it's like they were still willing to kind of like show that they cared for him even if he did something that they didn't agree with to the point that his mentor even like jumps in front of the knife and gets killed um, because they're trying to execute him. I just thought that was really, was really interesting. And it's not really the type of scene that you typically see in something that's like about breaking with authority. Well, that elder Biwa player is basically an adopted father. Right. And like he, he knew him since he was a kid so he's bound to have protective feelings of mm-hmm. I've taken care of this boy who's now a man uh, since he was a young child. So I will bring him back into the fold. I will protect mm-hmm. him. Uh, yeah. 
And I just think that adding that that layer to it sort of shows Yuasa's willingness to have complex narratives rather than like black and white stories. No, but uh, for sure, we we already get a lot of the the political machinations through the the court itself. Uh, the Biwa priest, they're really just fellow musicians. They've yeah. been with him the whole time. They're not they're not really there to play the politics necessarily. In fact, I don't think they even have really even that power. They're mm-hmm. not given the same. Um, you, you know, he he talks to Inu's father, Inu's father, and leads him in on this scam. The, the plot to, to stop and destroy Inuo. Mm-hmm. And the priests aren't really part of that. They're not really given that power. They're not really acknowledged to have any power. They're just there to play their music. And mm-hmm. really come down to this fellow creatives working together. They may not agree with this new fashion devil music <laughs> that uh, <laughs> was playing, but it's still, you know, there's still a camaraderie there. Right. I get the impression that the Biwa and Biwa priests really aren't a, uh, a growing industry at the time. <laughs> Probably far from it. sort of the more the political we'll talk about the political machinations but so much of this is tied up into the the heike uh, uh, clan and whatever the i guess the new version of that with the uh the shogun here so much of this movie is about the established order being decided in courts and through murder plots and assassination plots on the sideline the the people in power do not care about their their subjects at all they're there to rule and to keep that order and we see that's the real struggle of this movie is just change versus the established order in a way that's not even just tradition necessarily but people actively trying to uh, keep their power right in a sort of a non-militaristic fashion Mm -hmm. and that also trickles down to uh to inuo's father because like the reason he wants to be like the gold standard, like the only standard of of uh, performance art for for the shogun and for the for the elites is because that's what makes him most comfortable. Like if he doesn't have to compete against anyone else, then by default he is uh, he's going to be the king of his little of his little uh, song and dance empire, and he's yeah. so obsessed with that that like like in the beginning like we've said before like he sacrifices his his unborn child to this uh demon mask basically and it's just like yeah if if this is what will keep me in power this is what i will do and then ultimately that ends up being his downfall but again it, it's kind of to your point mm-hmm. of like you know everybody is uh, there's so many different um players in this in this chess game 
all vying for you know their piece of the pie and everybody else can go f off yeah and i i know that there's a lot of a lot of moving parts here you mentioned the act one just being so tonally different than the rest of the um you know the rest of the movie i would i would really recommend if if you don't want to go back and read the original story then science sorrows uh anime television series haikin monogatari that just came out a, a few years back is a, a great comparison though it's a great companion work to this just because it goes over a lot of the stuff that came before and you see a lot of the same machinations you have the the original Tidre clan as this, this force that just does not care about their subjects, that is just there to play the court game, the um, the Game of Thrones, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you want to get, see more of that, definitely recommend checking that out to, to tie into this here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watching uh, Inuo definitely see. has inspired me. Like, I was already watching the Heike story, like, kind of off and on. But it's watching this has definitely inspired me to want to go back and, and finish it up. Yeah. And we see the the beginning of the Battle of Danora, where you talk about the, like the grass cutter sword that we mentioned. Like that entire thing was originally they I mean they they tied it up in the story of sending the young prince down to the, what the Dragon Island or something mm-hmm. uh, and, and under the water. It's really, just a matter of getting rid of this child emperor, like killing mm-hmm. the child emperor with the sword. And then now we see the new Shogunate, they want that sword as a, a emblem of their power, which is why they hire Tomo Tomana and his father initially to begin with. It's, it's more or less said that they had no intention of paying them. They were going to kill them mm-hmm. one way or another. It just so happened that the sword did that work for them. Mm-hmm. So this, this need for power, this lust for power, affects everyone around them. Even the, the little people they hire, it keeps the Biwapris down. Uh, you mentioned Inoa's father, and so much of that is tied into his rival. You know, we see his rival perform for the the Shogun, and is the um, the best no dancer around. And he he wants that position for himself. Mm-hmm. He wants that recognition for himself. And again, it's a matter of who's in power, who has that power, and who wants to keep that power. That mm-hmm. plays into this movie so so well. Mm-hmm. And it shows it in, in good contrast, too, for, for like, Inuo and uh, Tomoari's performances, because it seems like, for the most part, they just want to perform for the sake of it, like, perform for the sake of the art, and, like, uh, Inuo is happy that he's able to get his, his body parts back and everything, like, he, he gets returned to normal, the curse is lifted, but it seems like, if if I'm reading on it correctly, he would do that anyway, because of just the joy of of making art compared to the as other people who are in it for personal gain. It's pretty much matter of that expression and getting that audience. We see that the people around don't necessarily go out of their way to see the Biwa players. Mm-hmm. The no performances are given pretty much just for the nobility. They're not really something that the, the common people enjoy in this movie. Mm-hmm. So then when you're going about your daily business and someone is, you know, playing queen on the bridge, <laughs> talking about a performance, you know, you can see for free if you just walk under the bridge. Yeah, of course, you're going to get the attention of the people and win hearts and minds a lot better than you would just by saying so. And one of my favorite sequences was just like after their first big performance where they do the 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 um, the the funeral mound of arms or something 
yeah. they uh there's just that sequence that montage of like all the people in town all the regular folks just talking about how cool that performance was or like did you guys hear about this Inuo guy like he's so cool and like we're gonna go see him perform and that's this very grassroots thing rather than something that the the people in power are trying to impose but I, I think we've very well covered our point on that one but uh bill you you had some uh some misgivings a bit with the ending that i think s- some of us might share in some way or another but uh go ahead and lay that on us like what's what's your what's your beef with the ending just it was such a it was such after such a high of the third performance it felt so disappointing that the ending is kind of ends on a whimper of of like the emperor decides like nope we're gonna stick with the old stories these new stories are no longer allowed and uh Inuo basically agrees that i will only perform for you and that what i did before is done and that his uh friend basically go tries to say nope and shut it down and I was fine with all that. My problem is just kind of like that gets resolved in its sad ending. And then they fast forward like a millennia later to where uh, he's a ghost and they they meet up again and be like, let's, let's perform again. And I felt, it felt just kind of like a quiet ending to me. I think I would have, after being on such a high from the musical performance, I kind of wish it was like a, no, we're going to go out like a Viking ship and do one last performance and we're going to die performing. That I think that's what I would have preferred. But I mm-hmm. kind of get what they were trying to do of just like, well, con- the, the manner of the conformity will, will usually win out in the end. So... I can kind of see his point, and I, I guess just the the emotional high from the third performance was such was so good that it, the ending felt like such a whimper to me that it was like, oh man, I, I was just I was just kind of like, did it have to end that way? Like I, I get it now, thinking of just kind of thinking about it because it's a commentary on like the the the. Uh, the power, the powerful forces that be usually winning out, and you're not always going to get your happy ending. You, you, you aren't always going to be the identity that you want to be, unfortunately, um, due to external factors beyond your control, which sucks. But, um, but I guess I would have just liked them to go out like a, a Viking death ship, and do <laughs> one last performance. Yeah, what do you guys make of that? Because, like, I can understand the ending that we have, but I think Bill's would have really hammered home that sort of anti-establishment theme that they were going for. But there, mm-hmm. you could also do a reading of, like, oh, well, in the end, Inuo just sold out and Tomoari, like, died. Like, Inuo definitely got the better end of the stick in that regard, but he also but sold he, out. So, But, it, but he's also well, forgotten. He's also forgotten, they say in the postscript, where we don't right. no one remembered him. Mm-hmm. So did he really win? That's a good question. I mean, ar- arguably no, but I mean he did get to survive, I guess. So I don't know. It's it's complicated. So what do you guys think? I took it as him trying to protect his friend, 
which unfortunately mm-hmm. was kind of for nothing because, you know, Tomari didn't give up and got himself killed because he didn't want to mm-hmm. give up what made him happy and what he felt like he was made to do. And I feel like you could read the scene of Inuo kind of like putting his head down and popping back up and being in that like very fake like, oh yes, I'm here for you, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really changes depending on what lens you're looking at everything mm-hmm. under for sure. Um, to me, I don't know if we're still doing like a trans or gender themed reading to me that kind of reads as like you know um maybe compulsory heteronormativity my god that was a mouthful is not necessarily what i'm trying to get at but just like hiding who you are and like not being open about your identity and things like that to kind of like not rock the boat and blend in just enough to kind of like fit in within the normality quote-unquote normality of Mm -hmm. things um but i at the end of the day i just think he was trying to protect tamari and unfortunately like i said i feel like it was kind of wasted because he got killed anyway um but that scene was really incredible when he was like no my name's tomona and then right in the middle of it got decapitated um was just uh, powerful to me at least i I don't know like admitting who you are and like who you've always been to everyone around you is a big deal you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and um i i do agree it would have been really cool to have seen them do like a rock performance to the death and you know stick it to the man one last time and go down in a blaze of glory but like Sometimes you got to do what you just got to do to survive, and that doesn't always work out the way you plan for it to. I liked the reuniting in the end. I don't know. It made my heart happy. I was just like, ah, yes, the boyfriends are back together and can, like, float off into the sky and make music together, and they'll be together forever. And I I don't know if that's how I personally would have ended it, but I don't think I was necessarily dissatisfied it just would have been cool to maybe see it take a different route if Mm. any of that made sense would you would you say tori that perhaps inuo never actually took off his mask at the end well in the sense that you know he was he was told to keep his head down to guard his friend finally after revealing his face for the first time ever but then having to put on a happy face for the sake of of keeping the normality yeah i know you could yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You. I mean, no, no. I yeah. mean, that, that's kind of what that's that's really what's going on here. I, mean, I don't. Yeah. I don't think you could ever make the reading that even will sold out because it's not you know do this or we will kill you. It is do this or we will kill the only person that's ever understood you. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the shogun really understands how to manipulate people, and that's put your friends in danger, put their friends in danger mm-hmm. rather, to yeah. guide them. So that's exactly what he did, and what really what it comes down to is the two leads made separate choices. Uh, Tomo Tomari decided that this is the most important to me, that being Tomari, that performing this music is the only way I have purpose, which is why he mm-hmm. rejects being told, even when his um, his elder is, is killed in front of him. He continues to fight until his last moments, that this is me, this is my expression. 
I will do this and the people, the fascists in power will have to kill me to stop me. That's that's it. And Iniwo doesn't, it, it's not, it, his stakes aren't personal. His stakes are, I'm going to kill your friends. So he keeps his head down and does so. But ultimately, it's the same result. He's forgotten about his identity, his everything about, everything that he's done, his entire output is squashed. And the the entire ending, the last scene we see where they're meeting in modern times, it's pretty much them looking at the audience and saying, "This could happen to you." <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is this is this is this, this entire movie ties into this is going on right now. This is not a historical play about one particular thing. These are themes of power and politics that will continue to reverberate throughout time. And you can choose to fight against that order and be yourself and ensure that um, security for being yourself. Or you can give in to these easy uh, these easy choices and be forgotten about. And there's uh, one quote from Yuasa I want to say here. When speaking out the movie, uh, he said, It is also a story of life today, whether to align with fate and fashion to seize glory or to forego reward to live according to your beliefs. The two offer recompense to the defeated by telling their stories. And the two here, we're talking about Iniwo and uh, Tamari. Uh, the two offer recompense to the defeated by telling their stories. And this film offers the same to them in kind. Hey folks, editing Austin here. Unfortunately, my internet cut out, so you won't hear me for the rest of the episode. And it cut out right in the middle of Tobias reading that quote, so he doesn't actually get to finish it. It was kind of a weird Wi-Fi day, that entire recording, but thankfully we made it work for the most part, but it did give up the ghost eventually. Anyways, sorry about that, and here's the rest of the episode. Hope you enjoy. I think if this is truly Yuasa's last film, I think he went out with making something really unique. I love the hopefully intentionality of the casting choices here the songs are stuck in my head it's literally ride your wave 2.0 like every time i think about it one of those songs plays in my head and even though i think it kind of needs a little bit to get its footing in that first act i think everything else to me pays off so well that just I don't know, this is definitely one of my favorite movies that I've watched in a while, and I don't want to hype it up too much, but um, I think, you know, any director would be really lucky for to put out something like this, and you also just knocked it out of the park, so watch Inuo, it's real good. <laughs> exactly, and first yeah. we're going to have to wait to do that again. It was a limited release, uh, I'm sure the Blu-ray will come out, I'm sure they'll do that. It'll come out It'll come out in a few months. It'll it'll probably come out in a few months, just like um, uh, Fortune Favors, uh, Lady Nikuko, Lady Nikuko, which was a limited release thing, but that just that just recently got a Blu-ray release. So exactly, exactly. Like I said, I'm definitely gonna have to watch this with the headphones on just to get the full impact mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of everything again. I think I think the whale was my favorite. Uh, that song from from the entire thing. Something about just hearing that 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 Queen infamous Queen beat pop up with uh, you know We Will Rock You alongside the story and the visual effects they had going with it. 
Uh, I was really in that moment and felt like I was watching that performed in front of me. And that was really, yes. really powerful. This time I loved all the concert sequences. I felt like I was at a concert watching the movie in the theater when it was just me, my brother and two other people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wish again that I was seeing this in a large group. Cause I think that would have been such a fun experience. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, like I said before, I'm happy Uwas is going out on his own terms, and uh, hopefully he won't uh, get too bitter and be like, someone's doing something so surreal that's amazing, I need to come back and beat them! <laughs> yes. Just, just, like, <laughs> uh, just like Miyazaki's response to your name. <laughs> right. Um... I know we lost Austin because his internet dropped out and is not coming back, but I'm still going to ask this question anyway. Um, what were your guys' favorite scenes? Curious. Scenes. Well, I liked The Whale as my favorite set piece, but as individual scenes, hmm. I, I think my favorite, not going to go off the top of my head, is the third performance when it looks like he's skating across the water. Oh my and gosh! Yes, all the all the colors are just like oh, so pretty, so so pretty. I think for me, it's probably a toss up of when we see giant baby Inuo in the womb, and he starts becoming <laughs> cursed and weird, and um, was not expecting a giant baby to be there. That really caught me off guard. I'm not gonna lie. Were you have, um, uh, Were you having Death Stranding? flashbacks <laughs> no it was giving me um oh gosh uh resident evil village vibes when <laughs> when you're being chased by the giant weird baby monster i think that was that game i think that's right that or the ending i really like the ending it was just heartwarming to me even though you know maybe that wasn't the intended message but they were reunited that was good to me <laughs> so I really yeah. like the part where his in the same scene with the baby where his dad explodes. In a oh my gosh, we didn't even door. talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> where we kind of find out what his backstory is, and the mask shows up. Like, you know what? Well, screw you too, pal, and just blows him up. Yes. <laughs> you, you, oh my gosh. The, the Medora, basically, it looks like the mask from Medora's mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really creepy. Yeah. I think a lot of my favorite scenes, I keep coming back to some of the, the beginning stuff, the, the act one stuff. And there's the one scene where we see all the boats on the river and the entire scene is laid out almost like a, a, a painting or a scroll almost where it's not really given complete concrete form. We just see a lot of these boat like shapes on this river like shape with these white red flags against each other. That Something about that. I really can't say it just kind of strikes me. Uh, in a sort mm-hmm. of stylistic way, I think it's kind of, kind of great. I think uh, I think my sort of final thoughts on the movie as a whole, my takeaway is again, Yuvasa is trying to say here, and hell, even Furukawa, the original novelist, is trying to say here that this is not just history. This is not something you just read about. This is a story about actual living, breathing people that can be repeated and will be repeated, both the good and the bad. Uh, again, this, this does not exclude you dear viewer at all that you need to take these stories to heart and do what you need to do to express yourself and rise up if need be 
A lot of those acts aren't easy. They're not the most comfortable thing to do, but if you don't do it, then those decisions will be made for you. Not always the best way. All right, well, we can give sort of our final social media preamble here. Austin can, uh, Austin can add in a lot of the website stuff, but. Hello, I'm back again. Our website is thirdimpactanime.com, and you can go over there to find an archive of all of the many episodes we've done over the years. You can also find links to our sub-shows, Kotatsu Corner and A Grand Line Reborn. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can check us out over on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime. You can also find us over on Twitter at ti underscore anime, and on Instagram at thirdimpactanime. If you're listening to the show on a podcatcher that allows you to either rate podcasts or give reviews, please consider doing either one of those. That would really help out the visibility of the show, and it would put a nice little smile on our faces. Okay, that's all. I'm gone again. Bye-bye. Let's say, Bill, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter at WBForeman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N, with three nines. Where I'm now uh, playing Final Fantasy XIV. I it's a miracle, I know. Uh, I guess it goes. You know, just, the power of One Piece can make me do a lot of things. So uh, <laughs> we'll be we'll probably be talking about my experience with fourteen and Tobias' experience with One Piece in a Katatsu episode down the road. I'm I'm looking forward to that, and. Um, if you want to hear more of my voice for some reason, you can hear me host the massive spring 2022 episode that I did with Tobias and Sarah. Uh, a lot of fun and uh, reminded me that I was a crazy person that season and watched too many shows. <laughs> and if you're wondering why the hell Bill is once again talking about One Piece, but also Final Fantasy XIV this time, uh, you would know this if you were on our Discord. So go ahead and find the link either in the show notes or on our website, thirdimpactanime.com. Join the conversation and follow along on both our journeys with uh, this manga series and this video game. But, Tori, where can people mm-hmm. find you on the internet? Yeah, um, I've been taking a little break from social media just to kind of recharge, but right, I'm decision. where. Yes, I am where I always am, and that's over on Twitter at Worst Waifu. I haven't really been watching anything but some K-dramas and uh, not tweeting about them, and I've been playing Isomnium Files and also not tweeting about that, so that's where I am right now. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. You definitely need to do a Kotatsu Corner. We talk about that and like 999 and that author's other, other stuff. I know Ryan's a big fan. Well. yeah that would be great all right and i guess if you want to follow me online you can do that as well i am uh, at reverend underscore tobias on the bird site and that's pretty much it for us fun times was had by all at the rock concert 